0: As America's founders knew for sure, you got to have a free press or you're not going to have a democracy. But what happens when the media is owned by just a few powerful people? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are Keeping Democracy Alive.
1: What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code.
0: Get an ambulance back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through.
1: For the few, the rights of U.S. corporations to extract from the land of Central America and exploit the people of Central America. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man.
0: Thomas Jefferson said in 1786, our liberty depends on the freedom of the press and that cannot be limited without being lost. Jefferson understood that a vibrant and free press is critical to sustaining the rule of law and to maintaining democracy. Along with free speech, a free press is indispensable for people to be informed and to participate in a democracy. No doubt this is the reason that when he was president, Donald Trump called the press, the news media, an enemy of the people. Being so central to democracy itself, all tyranny hates and seeks to crush a free press. Americans certainly have a wide range of attitudes today toward what used to be called the press. Now it's far more expansive than that. The fact is, distrust of the media is pervasive. And that aspect itself endangers our democracy when we don't have faith in our media. Some people on both the right and the left insist the press has a bias against them. This trust of the, distrust of the uh, press is hardly a new phenomenon. Two of the 20th century's most luminous journalists, Upton Sinclair and Walter Lippmann, had been friends. But a sharp disagreement destroyed that friendship. One, Upton Sinclair, argued that the press was tainted because it was beholden to corporate interests, while the other, Walter Lippmann, argued it was just human nature that was responsible for inadequacies in the press. That's what we're going to discuss today, where it was then, where it is now. Our guest today, Maya Silber, wrote an article in Psyche magazine examining this seemingly perpetual disagreement kicked off by those two men of letters. The essay is titled, What History Tells Us About the Dangers of Media Ownership. What can we reasonably expect and demand of a free press in 21st century America? And though no doubt each media outlet would claim to be fair and balanced, objective facts only, this is neither real nor even possible. Why? So what can be done? Maya Silber is a Ph.D. candidate in American history at Princeton University, where she studies labor, cities, and the news media, among other topics. She also writes criticism and commentary for publications such as The Washington Post, Public Books, Commonweal, and The Harvard Review. Maya, thanks so much for being with us and keeping democracy alive.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Bert.
0: Well, at least when I went to public school— Upton Sinclair's book, The Jungle, was vital to any teaching of American history. His take on the dangers of media ownership is one of the two dueling explanations. His former friend, who became a literary and perhaps political antagonist, was Walter Lippmann, a name that may sound familiar to our well-informed listeners. But to set the context for this discussion, please, Maya, tell us about the two early 20th century writers. Who were they, and how were they seen in their time?
1: Sure. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the jungle because it's a great introduction to Upton Sinclair and his work. It's certainly how I was first introduced to him as well in public school. Um, and it's funny because the way that the jungle is often taught, it's taught as this critique of poor sanitary practices in the meat patching industry right. um, and the danger that that gave meat eaters. Um, And that was certainly one of Sinclair's points. But his greater point in the book was really about the treatment of workers in the meatpacking industry. And in fact, the jungle was part of a large body of work. He also wrote a book called King Coal about the coal industry um, that was all about basically the dangers of the corporations of the Gilded age and particularly their poor labor conditions. Um, So he famously quipped in regards to the reception of the jungle, I aimed for America's heart and I hit it in the stomach. So he was furious that what people took away from the book was this point about sanitation, when in fact he wanted to make a point about workers. Um, So Upton Sinclair was a socialist. He was a member of the Socialist Party. That really shaped his work, and it also shaped his friendship with Walter Lippmann. So Upton Sinclair founded an organization called the Intercollegiate Socialist Society, which was basically a group of young student radicals. Walter Lippmann joined that organization organization when Mm -hmm. he was an undergraduate at Harvard and it launched his own entrance into socialist politics. So Walter Lippmann's early writings were quite radical as well. At one point he worked for the socialist mayor of Schenectady, New York. Mm. But over the course of the 1910s, though Lippmann and Sinclair remained friends, Lippmann's politics really started to drift towards the center. So he's been variously described as a progressive, a pragmatic and a liberal. By around 1920, He he was editing The New Republic, which was really the voice of the sort of institutional liberal movement of his day. He was working for the Wilson administration. Wilson, of course, part of the Progressive Party. Um, So so and Sinclair had really sort of both had their grounding in socialist politics. And for Sinclair, that would be a lifelong affiliation. But by about a decade into his career, Lippmann's politics had really shifted.
0: Yeah, and that he was really an interesting character, Walter Lippmann, certainly less known than Upton Sinclair. And I'm guessing that many of the listeners have seen the movie Mank, good movie, about Herman Mankiewicz racing to finish his now classic film, Citizen Kane. Uh, you may remember that the Hollywood bigwigs antipathy toward Upton Sinclair in his run to be governor of California was uh, prominent in that film, this Vehement opposition from corporate powers is in line with Sinclair's explanation of what was wrong with the media. To me, it seems well. He's socialist. He certainly was a socialist. He he did very well in his campaign for governor. What was his book "The Brass Check" all about, and where does that title come from?
1: Yeah. So the the title of the brass check it's a bit of a kind of crude and heavy handed metaphor, but a brass track was a token that a customer purchased in a brothel that um, signified uh, that he had chosen a particular prostitute. Um, And and Sinclair chose this metaphor uh, really to represent what he saw as the ownership of the press. So we might think of the news as a public good, as something we all need in a democracy, vital information. Um, And Sinclair wanted to make the point that, you know, as much as the news was something we all needed, it was something that was owned by only a few. Um, And so in particular, he was interested in a very few men who by 1919, when the brass check was published, owned a disproportionate disproportionate amount of newspapers. So these were men like William Randolph Hearst of the Hearst Newspapers, Robert McCormick of the Chicago Tribune, uh, Otis Chandler of the Los Angeles Times, and countless others who owned maybe you know, two or three or half a dozen sort of smaller newspapers in rural locations. And Upton Sinclair made the point that the, the newspaper industry had become increasingly consolidated in the hands of these men, many of whom were independently wealthy, often through land holdings. And then he wanted to make the further point that these men were themselves owned and they were owned by advertisers. Mm -hmm. So newspapers in this period, as they are today, were dependent on advertising revenue. Sinclair was particularly interested in department stores, which in the 1910s had become an emergingly important business and occupied a disproportionate amount of ad space in newspapers. Um, And he saw owners as really sort of Dependent on their close links with these other sort of powerful businessmen in their computer, in their communities, so so Sinclair's point in the brass track was to say, if we want to understand newspapers, we need to understand newspapers as an industry, the same way we would understand. Meat, as he had exposed in the jungle, or coal, as he had exposed in King Cole. Later, he would go on to write about oil. These were large corporations, but they were under the hands of a very small number of individuals. And those individuals, he believed, had a disproportionate effect on the news that was covered.
0: And the idea that uh, it's about, you know, making money, as it is today, uh, and and big corporate uh, powers owning it, is of concern when, you know, the pre-press is so vital to a democracy. So what was Lippmann's reaction to the brass check Sinclair's book? He, he had argued, it, again, that the problems with the press arose from its basic drive for profit and power. What was Lippmann's diagnosis of the problem in the press? And why is it that his book, Lippmann's book, Public Opinion, became a classic and Sinclair's did not?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I think it's important to note first that, you know, Lippmann and Sinclair were really concerned with the same problem. They really both saw the press as vital to a functioning democracy. And they were both concerned that news had become full of bias and inaccuracy. Um, but Lippmann essentially thought that Sinclair's point was somewhat simplistic. He said, you know, Sinclair thinks this is all about the conscious conspiracy of a few owners. That's absurd. How could a few men possibly transmit their influence across these broad corporations and influence so many papers? Furthermore, he thought that the problem with the news was much Deeper And in some ways more insidious. He thought it was essentially a problem of human nature itself. So <laughs> in Lippmann's view, we live in an incredibly complex world. And we might think that we're grasping something like the truth, something like the facts. But in fact, we're only glimpsing a very small part of it. And we're glimpsing that part of it through our own preconceptions, our own biases. Lippmann coined the term blind spots. So this is really a, a psychological diagnosis of the problems with the media. And Littman had, in fact, been reading a lot of the sort of emerging psychoanalysis of his time, especially these studies about mob mentality. Um, so Litman sort of made the point, well, if you think that uh, if you think that the problem is with these corporate owners, then you would expect the socialist press to be free of bias and inaccuracy. And in fact, there's plenty of bias and, and inaccuracy there too. Mm-hmm. So he agreed, with, he agreed with Sinclair that there was a problem with the press, but he thought the problem wasn't the particular owners of the press. It was with humanity, with the essential limits of our cognition.
0: Yeah, interesting. And, and a lot of people, you know, with all the different choices these days, they, they say that I mean, people admit that they uh, listen to news or watch news that goes along with how they feel. They don't want to see anything else. And that, I think, is really dangerous. And, you know, along the lines of what we're talking about, here we are, the Washington Post, a generally, generally liberal newspaper, is now owned by one of the richest men in the world, Jeff Bezos. Now, Trump despises Bezos, and allegedly, allegedly, Bezos' opinion has no effect on the editorial position of the Washington Post. No doubt Trump would disagree, as if his opinion matters, but maybe it does. What about that? Does this argue in favor of Sinclair's description of the public failings of media?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And it's, it's funny that you bring up Trump because I think that, you know, Trump, as usual, has sort of produced what is a widespread structural problem to his own personal petty biases. So he has no problem with Jeff Bezos being rich and powerful. He has a problem because of his sort of personal feud with Jeff Bezos. And of course, the idea that the Washington Post is personally out to get Trump is absurd. But I think that, you know, the the reason that that argument resonates with people is because, as, as you mentioned in your introduction, there is this widespread distrust in the media and people are suspicious of this idea that, well, the owner of a newspaper has no influence on, you know, the writers. And this is one of the points that Sinclair made in response to Lippmann, who said, well, the only way this could happen is if there's some conscious conspiracy. And Sinclair is saying, well, it doesn't really work like that. Newspaper owners are bosses. They transmit directives through layers of hierarchy, through editors and sub-editors that get down to reporters. And reporters understand, you know, without having to be explicitly censored or told what to write, what the priorities of the newspaper are. So an owner shapes that by making decisions at the top level about, you know, who gets hired, who gets fired, what beats and sections of the paper or radio station or television station, as it may be, are prioritized, and which aren't. Um, so Upton Sinclair gives the example of how Newspapers in his day covered the death of a sales girl in a department store. Hmm. And he notes that the newspapers don't mention the name of the department store where she was killed. Now, is this because a particular editor went in with a red pen and highlighted the name? No, it's because of a more sort of general editorial decision to cover this incident as a tragic accident rather than as part of a longer standing pattern of labor abuses and neglect of workers' safety in this store. So the point that Sinclair is making is that you know, a a newspaper owner doesn't have to tell a reporter, cover this, don't cover this. But there are decisions about framing and about priority that come down from the top and that influence the way that reporters write.
0: Yeah, I think I've certainly seen it. And, uh, you know, local papers uh, oftentimes feel the effects of the owner of the paper having influence on the stories, who gets what, where, what the editorials are. But... Maybe it's more complex than that. It usually is more complex than that. As H.O. Mencken said, to every complex problem is a simple solution, and it's wrong. However, <laughs> theres I think Sinclair's understanding that they're basically bosses... I don't know, it seems to me, has uh, a lot of uh, validity still today. And if you just tuned in, Burt Cohen here, the show is keeping democracy alive. Our guest today is Maya Silber, who's written an article in Psyche magazine titled, What History Tells Us About the Dangers of Media Ownership? And the the context of bosses. You know, Sinclair looked at the industry of the just-ended 19th century and believed that, that they were, you know, there was a general attitude of ignoring or denigrating labor unrest and social radical social movements of the 19 teens, that they were the result of the financial structure of the media that was in sync with other businesses as well. So, so tell us please about what Sinclair saw as its financial structure and if it might be carried over today.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So as I mentioned earlier, Sinclair was interested in ownership and he said newspapers are owned by owners, these powerful men, and the owners are owned by advertisers. And this was, in fact, a relatively new financial structure at this moment. Uh So previously, for most of the 19th century, newspapers were funded directly by political parties and they were essentially mouthpieces of the party. Over the course of the 19th century, newspapers turned to a new basis for revenue that they were able to tap into as cities expanded, as the population became more literate, and as capital flocked to cities. And the base that they turned to was advertisements, and this is still the primary source of revenue for most media businesses today. Um, So when Sinclair said that owners were owned by advertisers, just as he believed that, you know. Owners could transmit directives to their workers without directly right. slashing their copy with a red pen. Right. He believed that advertisers were influencing owners in more subtle ways as well. Um, so one important thing to Sinclair was that owners and advertisers were part of the same class. And what did that mean concretely? It meant their children went to the same schools, they went to the same social clubs. They shared sort of assumptions and ideals and aspirations they lived shared lives so again without an advertiser needing to say i'll pull my advertisement if you cover a strike on my shop floor advertisers and owners took part in a sort of shared culture and, they, and owners understood from advertisers what the sort of expected viewpoint of their newspapers was. What would make the newspaper an acceptable venue for an advertiser? So again, it's not about seeing this as some, you know, one individual sort of exerting their influence in a tyrannical way. It's about the more subtle networks of power that shaped how how news was written.
0: And we still see that today. I, you know, some people, you know, who, uh, Tend to simplify things, uh, say that, uh, oh, there's this great media conspiracy that they don't cover, you know, th- that there's a certain attitude, a certain like political line, like they would have had in the 19th century, uh, that they all stick to. It seems completely unrealistic, the idea that reporters, all reporters get together every day and decide, ah, we're all going to say this. That isn't happening. But advertisers, you know, you look at various different Uh, local TV stations, and they have their advertisers to please. They know that, you know, they can't do stuff that the advertisers are not going to like. And that clearly uh, is a a function that is still going on, the power of the advertisers. And I wonder, you know, it it fits with, I I believe what I'm saying fits with Sinclair's uh, uh, understanding of it. But I wonder what what about the power of the advertisers that was starting to happen in the age of Sinclair and Littman? What would Littman have to say about that?
1: Yeah, it's funny. this is actually a point where I think Littman and Sinclair are somewhat in agreement. Um, so Lippmann also points to the influence of what he calls the buying public. So this is essentially the people who not just the people who read newspapers, but the people that newspaper owners want to attract, who are the people who will read their newspapers and buy items advertised in them, and therefore make the newspapers more attractive to advertisers, right? This is what newspapers sell ads. They are trying to attract the advertisers by attracting potential consumers. Um, And this is essentially, you know, between the sort of skilled working class and the middle class, Americans who have enough disposable income um and Sinclair actually agree I li- sorry let agrees with sinclair on the point that this sort of pitch to this public has a disproportionate influence that there's a kind of shared mentality among these consumers that the owners are sort of you know trying to buy into that the owners want to attract a middle-class public so they are sort of Uh, aiming themselves at what they perceive as the desires of the middle class Uh rather than the workers, as Sinclair might prefer. Um, Now, where I think Sinclair might disagree with Lippmann is that Lippmann really sees this as, you know, the owners themselves being sort of subservient to the public. And I think that, you know, Sinclair might make the point that, like, well, there's still a choice there, you know. There's no sort of... uh, uniform or consistent uh sort of attitudes among the public that own that owners and you know through them writers and editors are inevitably going to pitch to they're also creating the desires and, ad- and yeah. attitudes of the reading public themselves so i think that um you know he i think he and litman would both sort of identify as a problem this fact that, you know, the newspapers of this day are, are disproportionately sort of pitching themselves to middle class readers, even if they might have working class mm-hmm. readers as well. But I think Sinclair would probably see this more as something that owners could influence.
0: Interesting, you know, about how they not they don't just reflect attitudes, but they they do create it. And that's the way it uh, seems the press has worked for a long time. And Lippmann was one of the founders of the New Republic, a highly respected, fairly liberal magazine. He then became an advisor to Woodrow Wilson, whose image was of a liberal. <clears throat> but then, as uh, American Bar Association President uh, Klein points out, during World War I, Woodrow Wilson signed the Exp- Espionage and Sedition Acts of 1917 and 1918, which made it a crime to, quote, utter, print, write, or publish any disloyal profane, scurrilous, whatever that means, or abusive language about the federal government. Under this act, people got hurt. Uh, Jacob Frowork was sentenced to 10 years for publishing articles that uh, claimed that the U.S. got involved in the First World War to benefit Wall Street bankers. Now, the newspapers back then were largely distributed through the Post Office, a federal agency. Wilson ordered the Post Office, not to distribute any left magazines, newspapers like Emma Goldman's Mother Earth. It was a ter- time of terrible repression of political thought. I wonder if mm-hmm. Lippmann was okay with this and and how the press reacted. And before that, you know, th- these were not major newspapers. They didn't have a lot of advertising. They were just uh, more of the old 19th century party organs. But w- what, what What do you think Lippmann would have said about this kind of repression of the press?
1: Yeah, that that's a great question. And and Lippmann was actually entirely aware of the Wilson administration's actions. He was a close advisor to Lippmann, and he was in close dialogue with. you know, the the members of the Wilson administration who were pulling in some cases directly these newspapers from newsstands. And a bit objected to this, but not for the reasons you might think. So he actually didn't think it was a problem for the Wilson administration to intervene directly in the news during World War One. He just thought they were going about it the wrong way. So he actually wanted the, the Wilson administration to really start more of its own sort of news organs and influence the public more directly. But he thought it was a waste of time to go after these socialist and radical newspapers. He didn't think that they were a real threat to the administration's priorities, and he also thought that going after them was just playing into the hands of The Bolsheviks or whatever other radicals. Um, So he actually said to Wilson, you know, I'm not um, I'm not a free speech doctrinaire. I actually think it's appropriate, at least in a wartime context um, for the government to intervene in the news that's being distributed. But you have to do it in a smart and practical way. And and this is sort of consistent with Lippmann's sort of turn at this time toward pragmatism and also toward his his sort of trust in traditional authorities to guide the news um, and this is something that comes up in public opinion as well so his you know this the solution that he proffered for the problems of the media was actually for the government to develop its own departments to collect and distribute information um, so for for Lipman, the idea of the government sort of involving itself directly in the news um, this was not at all in conflict with his sort of his liberalism or with the value he placed on the role of the press in democracy.
0: Yeah, interesting. Back then, people, you know, liberal people believed in the government. I, I was brought up that way, uh, thinking that uh, yeah, the food, of course, would be good and safe <laughs> because the government had inspectors and they wouldn't let us eat uh, bad food. <laughs> yeah, well, that was then, this is now, but uh it, it, interesting that he thought uh, it could be done uh, more subtly, and I'm, I imagine it could have, and certainly that, uh, uh, it, you know, it, it goes on and on and on. And in the 1950s, uh, with the, uh, the Red Scare, the McCarthyist period, uh, it, it, having giant headlines about Reds in the, in the media, Reds in Hollywood, sold papers. Did they have to do that? No, but they, it was about selling papers. And a lot of people got hurt then. They did. And so Lipman want wanted, I can't imagine what kind of government involvement he would have wanted. Do you have any, any sense of that? You know more about him than I do.
1: Yeah, yeah. So would I really envisioned these government departments as a means for the government to collect the sort of information that ordinary people didn't have access to. So again, for him, this was a solution to this problem of the partial truth that we can see with our own eyes. And it's it's really a sort of Faith in that sort of progressive era science of the ability to collect data on a large scale and to th- synthesize it. And he thought that, you know, this is something he wanted to be done by sort of career government workers, not by politicians. And he saw these career government workers really as akin to scientists. And Lemon was extraordinarily excited by the scientific method. This model of sort of detachedly examining one's hypotheses with evidence. And this is where he thought that the government, and and later he argued that the press could in fact develop such institutions itself, um, could sort of overcome these subjective limitations of human cognition um, by investing sort of resources and training in cultivating experts to collect and examine data.
0: When we had faith that they could do that and not be swayed by uh, the political powers that are uh, and that were. Um, And, you know, for most of my life, there were three TV networks, ABC, NBC, and CBS. But as Linda Linda Klein, again, president of the American Bar Association, writes, changing technology and an evolution in the way people consume news has brought challenges. Among them, Fabricated news stories shared on social media sites and a tendency for readers uh, to only consider news stories that adhere to their political ideology, which we talked about earlier. I remember when cable news outlets started springing up, in my naivete, I expected it to be a great benefit to democracy, more varied voices having a platform equally accessible to all the public, uh, but aside from those hopes, I wonder if you could talk about the rise of cable news in the context that we're discussing in terms of, uh, you know, uh, legitimacy of the stories, lack of, uh, of bias and, and uh, you know, directive by the corporate owners. Your thoughts?
1: Yeah. you know, it's, it's interesting that you said that you expected cable news to have this democratic effect because that that was really an expectation that was shared at the dawn of cable um, by people across the political spectrum. Um, and it was an expectation that was understandable because those three networks, ABC, NBC, CBS, they really did exert an outsized influence, and they were key to sort of forging that mid-century Cold War consensus. Um, so the historian Nancy Bernhardt has written about um, the great effects that the State Department had on uh, the material that was shown on these networks about the Korean War um, and later on the Vietnam War. So there really was sort of, a you know, kind of tight close network of government officials and broadcasters. Um, There was also great suppression of news about labor unrest by the networks. Um, So the National Association of Broadcasters tried very hard to keep labor off the air. Um, So there was a real reason to sort of criticize those networks and to hope that more sort of diversity of platform would remedy um, some of those ill effects of consolidation. Um, So the historian um, Catherine Bromwell has written about this and and she's argued that it was really the Nixon administration that placed great faith in cable and hoped that, you know, cable would sort of open up room for new voices that would move away Mm. from what Nixon saw um, as a sort of hegemonic liberal view Mm. of the networks. But what this, in fact, meant for the Nixon administration was really deregulating cable. So cable was not subject um, to the FCC guidelines, which were both about um, the sort of representation of diverse viewpoints and also acting against, um, you know, sort of consolidation within cable so that the FCC guidelines that applied to cable were different from those that applied to broadcast news. Um, So this really paved the way for a market that in many ways resembled the newspaper market of the early 20th century that would ultimately become quite consolidated. So of course you have the Murdoch media empire and Fox news um, and you also have ironically Sinclair news, no relation to Upton Sinclair. I
0: know.
1: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Consolidated network of cable news that is, White of course, there are, you know, more liberal and left leaning cable outlets as well. But just as in the early 20th century, this sort of lack of regulation um, really created an opportunity for a sort of, you know, anything goes free market and the people who seized power in that market were more often than not um, the voice of the powerful and tended to be conservative leaning.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of that in American history in all kinds of ways. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about uh, a, a essential foundation of democracy, the press. And our guest today is Maya Silber, who's written uh, an article, What History Tells Us About the Dangers of Media Ownership. Maya Silber is a Ph.D. candidate in American history at Princeton University, where... Woodrow Wilson had been president. She studies labor cities and the news media, among other topics. And you mentioned just a minute or two ago about the National Association of Broadcasters and their power. And that sounds kind of conspiratorial. What about the the, the power, the editorial power of this National Association of Broadcasters? Talk about their power over newspapers and uh, broadcasters, please.
1: So the National Association of Broadcasters is a lobbying group, a sort of similar group is um, the American Publishers Association representing newspaper editors. And a really sort of ignored aspect of media history is just how much influence these groups have exerted over politics. Um, So Sam Leibovitch has written really brilliantly about how industry lobbyists have basically fought against government attempts over time uh, to regulate the media industry and to limit consolidation. Um, And they really use two strategies. One strategy is to argue that any sort of government interference with the press is a violation of free speech. Now, as you said before, this hasn't always been the assumption. You know, the idea that big government would play a role in regulating markets was, you know, for many people assumed in the New Deal era. And in fact, as Levich has written during the New Deal, there were various proposals um, to regulate newspapers through antitrust provisions, through consumer protections. Um, and newspaper lobbyists really successfully mobilized against that. Um, and a sort of second tool that industry lobbyists have used is arguing that in fact deregulation would lead to more competition. Um, so Nixon in 1970 uh, passed the Newspaper Preservation Act. And Nixon argued that in order for newspapers to survive, they needed to be allowed to combine facilities. So these were called joint operating agreements. So it had previously been the case that two newspapers in one city couldn't share facilities. This was designed to sort of ensure that newspapers would be rivals with each other rather than polluting each other. And industry lobbyists basically convinced Nixon that the only way for newspapers to survive against the competition of radio and television, was to, in fact, allow them to combine their operations. And that's exactly what happened. And it facilitated an enormous wave of consolidation in the 1970s. Um, you see something really similar with the Telecommunications Act in 1996, which got rid of a previous. Uh, limitations on the number of radio stations that a company could hold, the number of television stations that a company could hold. Again, the sort of arguments that the only way the press can survive is if we sort of allow for these combinations. And in both cases, instead of sort of facilitating diversity in different viewpoints, it has in fact allowed the same companies to buy up more stations, more newspapers, whatever it was.
0: Ah uh, Yes, more concentration of wealth and power. And, you know, theoretically there could be, and I guess there are some on, uh, on the uh, cable uh, availability uh, of slightly left uh, outlets. And, you know, we don't have a Nation TV channel, a Mother Jones TV channel. There's no real left channels. And, you know, I, I wonder, is it just... The lack of advertising that does that? It, it may just be simply the market forces, or is there something more uh, evil going on behind it, do you think?
1: Yeah, no, this, this is a fascinating question, and it's actually a question that media scholars have been debating. So, you know, why didn't the sort of fall of the dominance of, you know, the big three broadcasters and the sort of rise of cable lead to um, the proliferation of left and liberal as well as conservative outlets. Um, And there are two political scientists, Matthew Grossman and David Hopkins, who have written about this and they have argued essentially that this sort of reflects the constitution of the political parties themselves. So the Republican Party in their view, has traditionally been more ideologically disciplined, more unified, whereas the Democratic Party tends to be more of a coalition of identity-based interest groups. And so in some sense, it, it makes sense that you know, the Republicans have been really able to align themselves behind a media machine, while liberals and leftists who are so often disagreeing with each other about yes. the issues and about their priorities have not. So I, I think this is an interesting argument and I think it has a lot of merit. But I think I'm I'm also inclined towards your view that this is about resources and market forces as well. So you mentioned Mother Jones and the nation. Mother Jones gets, I think, all of its revenue from um, – subscriptions and Mm. from donations, um, and the nation gets some revenue from advertising and the majority from donations. And this is true of many of these leftist publications and whatever media. Um, So if you think about it, I mean, simply the ability of a publication like that to expand, to consolidate, um, is limited. And of course, over time, there has also been great suppression of leftist publications. So during the second Red Scare, you mentioned earlier in the 1950s, the Daily Worker, the Communist Party newspaper, was actually pulled from newsstands. So I, I think there are a lot of factors going on. There has been sort of direct suppression at various moments, So I don't necessarily think that that's what's happening today. Um, it has to do with sort of political priorities among different groups, and it has to do with the resources that these outlets have. I certainly don't think any of this is Inevitable, you know, who knows, you can mm. certainly imagine sort of wealthy uh, liberals and leftists, someone like George Soros starting his own media empire. So I, ca- I can't predict the future, but it's it's certainly been true over the course of the 20th century that, um, you know, conservative voices tend to be leaders in business and industry. They have a tremendous amount of financial resources and they've been very good at putting those resources to use and establishing their own media.
0: I've long thought that I mean, why is communism a threat? To us, you know, if we can't, if we're not allowed to read communist papers, does that what does that say about our system? Don't we have faith in, that our system is better than than you know state run uh, communism? If if people can't see that stuff, I mean, what the heck are we afraid of? I would like to think that you know by allowing a multiplicity of, of opinions out there, people could pick and choose, and that the market would help it choose the best opinions. And I, I don't know why it has to be uh, repressed. When, as you say, you know the market forces—if they, you know—they just—it's just not there uh, for them, and they—they they just don't get the the advertising. Underneath all this concern is the question about accuracy and fairness. You know, people are really concerned about accuracy and fairness. Everybody assumes the press and the media are biased one way or the other. Lippman disagreed with Sinclair, who seemed to believe that pure truth existed to be corrupted and sold. Pure truth existed to be corrupted and sold. As you write, Lippmann believed that the problems of journalism were the problems of human nature itself. So was he saying that the problem lies with the psychology of humans uh, and the limits of human cognition and not some reduction to uh, the socialist Marxian uh, explanation of capitalist exploitation And the corruption that always results from that. Uh, Say more about Lippmann's understanding and your view of of his take with regard to uh, human nature itself rather than, you know, that there is some pure truth that uh, does exist and can be corrupted and sold.
1: Yeah, so I think it's really important to think about sort of who uh, Littman was writing against. In addition to disagreeing with Sinclair, he also disagreed with what was the sort of predominant um, view in the industry at his time, which Michael Shudson calls a sort of just-the-facts journalism. Uh Um, So as I mentioned before, you know, newspapers in this period had only recently broken from political parties. They were trying to find a new sort of way to claim credibility. And one thing they seized upon was this notion of facts and data, and if you can see it, if you've observed it, then it's true. Um, And Lippin was essentially saying this is really naive. For all of the reasons that I mentioned before, what what we can see, what's observable, is, in fact, incomplete. So when we think about the notion of objectivity that is emerging at this time, and Shudson really makes this point, objectivity is, in fact, a recognition of subjectivity. There's two two sides (laughs) of the same point. It's a method that is sort of meant to shore up our ability to observe and understand and interpret um, in the face of the awareness that Lipman had that our own views are incomplete and tainted by biases and misunderstandings and that there are interest groups of various kinds uh, that are sort of out there promoting their own interests. Um, now, it's interesting because I think that Sinclair might have, in fact, agreed with this point. I think that, you know, he and Lipman had sort of different methodological focuses. i think that you know litman accuses sinclair of assuming that there's such a thing as truth but i don't think that sinclair was particularly interested in you know the sort of metaphysics of truth he wasn't really trying to answer that question he was interested in questions of power whose voice gets amplified so my my sort of attempt to sort of sympathize sinclair and litman is to say that i i agree with litman that um that our views are incomplete, that they are subject to our inability to sort of observe everything around us in a complex world and to separate our sort of biases and preconceptions from what we do observe. But I think that then the crucial question becomes, okay, well, whose biases end up being influential? Whose views are magnified? So, of course, all humans have these essential psychological weaknesses, um, but only some of those only some of their views end up becoming politically important and influential and that's why i think sinclair is turning us to these questions of power and profit mm-hmm. so you know sinclair's response to litman's point well the socialists are biased too sinclair says sure but they don't have a lot of influence these socialist newspapers mm-hmm. are small they have limited circulations they may have their own biases and inaccuracies but they're not in the way that these sort of commercial outlets are. So I think I think you can really understand these problems of psychology and these problems of power as working in concert with each other.
0: Yeah, interesting. All different, uh, you know. There's this. I can picture some notion of objective truth out there, and then, but it has to be looked at from various different angles. You know, it, it, there's that old story about uh, you know, different people with an elephant. A blind person, you know, with elephants. Some people get the tail, the ears, the side, and it's all one thing. And and you, you got to have various different um venues to uh, to take a look at this stuff to see some kind of truth I I I have a hard time believing there's any kind of objective truth but uh, still I mean the fact that we have a press at all uh, they try to look at it and and see what they see as the truth but it's it's not complete I mean even I remember uh, Walter Cronkite saying at the end of the shows and that's the way it is I kept thinking well that's the way you see it you know, but it's not doesn't mean it's illegitimate because it's not illegitimate, and there's the the notion of expertise. Lippmann, uh, as you say, Lippmann maintained the hope that hope lay not in political struggle within the press, but in the creation of new institutions that cre- could transcend the press's limitations through the cultivation of expertise, and. When it came to the knowledge of experts, Lippmann's cynicism about the limitations, as we were talking about, of individual subjectivity seemed to vanish. Uh, Sounds to me like that might be elitism, the whole notion of expertise. I mean, people who are just uh, don't have any attitudes, that that this sort of reinforces what, what Sinclair was saying. Your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, in some in some sense, I do think there's a strain of elitism there. But I do think you know, I, I'm sympathetic to Lippmann's desire that there is some way to overcome. Um, you know, the sort of these psychological problems that he was identifying. And I think he didn't believe that there was some inherently special class of humans that could do this. Um, But he did have a great amount of faith in sort of the ability of these sort of professionalizing methods um, to help reporters ultimately, you know, discover and interpret facts in a more, responsible way. Um, Where I I think he erred was thinking that, you know, those institutions alone could really solve these problems of, you know, who who has the platform, what data gets observed in the first place. Um, And that's where I think that Sinclair might have been more on point that we can't just think about sort of developing um, expertise and developing higher professional standards, we also have to shift the balance of power. So another way to sort of understand this dispute between Sinclair and Lipman is to think about, were reporters professionals or workers? And reporters in the 20th century really sort of straddled that line. So they were white collar, though at this point, most of them were still not college educated. That would remain the case through the 1950s. They were pretty low paid and they were, you know, dependent on the owners of newspapers. Um, And so Lipman sort of thought that the solution to this problem was to make reporters more like doctors or lawyers or engineers to give them professional schools and professional codes um, to to train them again, like scientists. Um, And Sinclair thought that reporters should unionize. And in fact, there was a movement to do exactly that at that time. So the Newspaper Guild uh, was a new union of reporters. It's still around today and in fact, experiencing a great resurgence today uh-huh. in the 1930s, the newspaper guilds engaged in a number of enormous strikes. Sinclair was very much in support of this. He thought that newspaper reporters could seize greater power in the newsroom and with you know better wages and benefits would also come the ability to sort of make decisions rather than just sort of following these directives that came down from owners and advertisers. Um, but it was lit sort of vision of sort of professionalizing reporters that would ultimately come to dominate at least in mid centuries. So and you would see a sort of proliferation of journalism schools. You would see again, the sort of rates of college education among reporters would increase. You would see sort of efforts to establish these official ethics and codes. Um, that that sort of plan would ultimately come into crisis, beginning in the 1970s, when this further consolidation of newspapers led to mass layoffs of reporters. That whatever their professional expertise, they couldn't resist. So again, I, I really see Lippmann and Sinclair's visions as potentially compatible. So I do think that you know these these schools did teach reporters valuable skills, and many of them certainly used them to do exceptional work. Uh, but they weren't addressing that basic imbalance of power. And I think that Sinclair's vision for, you know, unionized reporters, really reporters who were seeking power as workers, um, has an incredible amount of potential as well.
0: I certainly agree. And for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy alive. We're talking about an essential factor of our democracy, the press. Are they to be believed? What can be done about... Uh, Accuracy in Media, which is a right-wing group, actually, Accuracy in Media. It's interesting (laughs) how they copy that. Our guest today is Maya Silber. She's talking about an article in Psyche magazine, What History Tells Us About the Dangers of Media Ownership. and. You know, one thing is for sure: true that reporters are not paid well; they're paid very badly, which you know fits in with the you know Sinclairian picture of uh, you know all the money going to the top and and the people at the bottom not having any say. And I have long believed in more democracy, not less, and that when more people have a stake and a say in how things get produced, quality will improve. And there are some unions. I wonder about the idea of dare I say, worker ownership and worker management of such things, such uh, media outlets. You're, what, what would, what do you think, uh, does that fit in with what Sinclair was talking about? And is any of it a bit happening?
1: Yeah. I mean, worker ownership was actually something that Sinclair directly advocated for. I mean, right? He was a socialist. He thought that reporters should seize the means of producing the news and produce their own papers. Um, and And today, I mean, that's a really good question about whether that's a vision that's actually been realized. Um, To my knowledge, I don't know of any sort of major outlets that are worker owned, though I I would not at all be surprised if there were sort of smaller left-leaning publications that are. Um, But what we are seeing today is really a tremendous resurgence of activism among reporters, as well as other sort of workers in the newsroom. And this is something that Catherine McCurcher has described as Convergence. So basically, as reporters have been asked to do more tasks than just reporting and writing, but also you know, producing, often working on the physical production of news materials, they have sort of allied with other news workers that have sometimes more sort of traditionally seen themselves as workers. Um, And this also really dovetails with the sort of post 2008 resurgence of labor activism among knowledge workers in general. So we're seeing sort of huge unionizing efforts among teachers, among nurses. Um, And these are basically, you know, workers who sort of share a commitment to doing something for the public good and also realizing that their ability to work for the public good is really being compromised as you know their industries are placing more and more pressure on them to work longer and harder for lower wages. And in the newspaper industry, this has taken the form of dominance of hedge funds. So the Atlantic just had um, an article about Alden Capital, a major hedge fund uh, that recently bought the Chicago Tribune and owns a number of other papers. And the sort of business model of these hedge funds is basically to sort of chop up newspapers and sell them for parts. And they've laid off a tremendous amount of reporters. So reporters have really been sort of confronted with their vulnerability as workers, not only with the inability to determine you know, the editorial direction of the media outlets they work for, but also just with the precarity of their living situations. Um, Mm. But the the positive side of this is that it, it really has, um, inspired, perhaps even kind of forced this activism. And I think there's some speculation, too, that this sort of resurgence of activism among reporters has also had the effect of sort of increasing the prevalence of labor coverage in the mainstream news. So in sort of Mm. seeing themselves as workers, reporters are also seeing themselves as allied with with other workers and with other struggles um so again there have been some tremendous successes there was recently a huge victory at the new Yorker. um there have of course been failures again the continued sort of consolidation and control mm-hmm. by companies it's an ongoing struggle and the the picture right now in many ways is still bleak. Reporters are still being laid off and many outlets mass. But I also think that there's tremendous hope in this recent wave of activism.
0: Yeah, there is a lot of new activism. I think people are starting to see that. And uh, it's actually sort of an exciting time for union orga- uh, organizing. And n- neither Lippman nor Sinclair could have imagined today's social media where pff, truth, pff, it's irrelevant. D- this is, in one sense, a vigorously free untethered press no bosses whatsoever they're, they're no longer with us but what do you imagine sinclair or litman might say about this social media you know just spreading of, of untruths
1: yeah i mean so one of the interesting things about social media is that with social media as with cable you know the expectation at the beginning of its development was that it would have this democratizing effect that anyone out there could say something and it you know it would be out there, it would be spread. Um, and more recently people have begun to sort of fear this aspect of social media and seen this as the sort of site for the spread of disinformation. But I think what both the sort of optimism and pessimism about social media has ignored is that in many ways it's still, you know, the traditional authorities—it's still the people who, who who holds power whose voices have been amplified. Um, and Joe Bernstein has recently written an article for Harper's about the ways in which you know this sort of narrative of disinformation, these rumors coming from your uncle's cousin or something, um, is it, it, actually you know a narrative that tech companies. Themselves have proliferated to sort of magnify the effect of their own influence and attract advertisers. Um, and in fact, there have been a number of studies by Pew and others that have shown that the stories that get amplified for good and for ill on social media are stories that are coming from traditional outlets. And of course, there's an interplay between individuals and outlets. And you know, a, an example of this. Um, for instance, with vaccine misinformation mm. is um, this idea, false idea that vaccines cause infertility. When this really took off, it was because a local news outlet in Florida reported on a school principal who banned her staff from being vaccinated for this reason. Now, this news outlet wasn't reporting <laughs> anything false that did happen. But by virtue of sort of putting that story out there, perhaps without sort of, you know, appropriate context and framing, that idea that vaccines are associated with infertility took off. So I think in in thinking about social media, it's so important to think about, you know, sort of whose voices are being amplified. Um, And it's not, you know, when I post on social media, I don't have the same effect as when, you know, the New York Times posts posts on social media, or when you know Trump posts on social media, right? So these sort of traditional hierarchies um, are not so much kind of disrupted as as replicated.
0: Yeah, interesting, and there's some good and bad to that. And and lastly, you write for all their differences, Lippmann and Sinclair both believed it was not only possible but necessary to imagine a radically restructured press, one more beholden to the ideals of a democratic society than to a bottom line. Do you think that's possible? Uh, look into your uh, crystal ball.
1: <laughs> I mean, I unfortunately, I can't predict the, the future. And oh, I, I certainly hope it's possible. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, I think that there have been some really interesting proposals lately. I think one promising development is that um, in the debates about the Build Back Better bill, as mm-hmm. you know, I, unfortunately, as, uh, as broad a process as that's become, there were proposals um, for the government to fund through various mechanisms, um, local news outlets and local reporters. That in some ways is sort of bringing back that New Deal idea of, in fact, the government can and perhaps should get involved with the press, that the government sort of leaving the arena hasn't resulted in greater freedom, it's resulted in concentration and consolidation of power. So I do think that there's great hope in the possibility, if we can ever get it passed legislatively, of government fundraising in the right directions. Um, There are also wonderful nonprofit news outlets like the Texas Tribune um, that are using donor money to do really, you know, Hard hitting investigative work. ProPublica is another one. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I don't have a kind of one size fits all solution. But I I do think we're in a time of um, experimentation and in a time of really critiquing and rethinking the sources of power in newsrooms.
0: And I always like to end on an optimistic note. And there you have it. Thank you so much. Very interesting. And, uh, you know, we, as, as I've often said, we have to think with history. Uh, the article is titled, What History Tells Us About the Dangers of Media Ownership. Our guest has been Maya Silber. Thank you so much for being with us today. A lot of fun.
1: Thank you so much, Bert.
0: Door Come words of wisdom from the world outside If you wanna know about a bishop and an actress If you wanna know how to be a star If you wanna know about the stains on a mattress with your help we are keeping democracy alive twice a week every week subscribe don't miss a single one on the website apple podcast spotify or stitcher